The following is a Secure Foundation broadcast. If you do not have the proper security clearance to listen to this broadcast, please turn off your listening device now and turn yourself in to the police. Our personnel will take it from there. Commencing playback of deadly auditory cognito hazard in 3, 2, 1. Hello, and welcome to the Secure Contained Podcast, the show that explains and discusses every aspect of the SAP Foundation, one topic at a time. Today, I'm actually your host, David, not your co-host. Um, Soren supposedly just put a, a message or an intro in. If not, then I sound really dumb. Um, but basically, the gist is, is he, he's sick. Um, he got sick this week. He actually can't speak at all. Um and since we missed last week, we didn't we didn't want to go on sort of a, a I forget the word uh, we didn't want to go on like a streak of that because um, you know we want to get you guys the episodes out we want to get the episodes out um, so we figured uh, we didn't want to miss another week so I'm doing it solo all me baby uh, your favorite 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 person I know I know you just you all of you just adore only me um, <laughs> anyways sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, like I said, today it's just going to be me um, talking, so that'll be interesting. Uh, anyways, um, today we are still doing groups of interest. Today's group of interest is uh, Soren put in the guideline, ARE WE COOL YET? All In all caps. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're basically a group of, the gist is they're a group of artists who are, quote, haughty and snobbish and dicks, um, end quote. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go ahead and read off of the overview page on the ARE WE COOL YET hub. Um, yeah, so, overview. Are We Cool Yet? is an artistic movement existing on the fringes of the international avant-garde, with roots in the early surrealist art movements of the late 19th and early 20th century, and the growing scientific understanding and study of the novelists that began to develop during that time. For one man's account of how the movement came into his own, refer to the contest entry tale, Birth of the Cool, which I'm gonna load up real quick. Um... It, it seemed, yeah, it, it looks like a, a just... Actually, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and read this, because this looks like it could be important. In the 19th century, the March of Progress made it possible for the first time for human science to contemplate and comprehend those phenomena which had long seemed to co- contravene the laws of nature. Within a matter of decades, concepts that had long been viewed as witchcraft or sorcery were laid bare in the terms of a new and secret science, and governments and organizations around the world began to classify, study, and collect all such anomalies, which I'm assuming turns out to be the um, foundation... And, just as artists throughout history have turned a critical eye to the events of the day in their work, so too did the artists of the scientific renaissance begin to interpret these new discoveries on canvas. By the 1870s, Paris was the center of the world of anomalous art, and the city stood witness to endless debates about the role of, of the anomalous in art, or whether such a role existed at all. When in 1874, the famed Salon de Magnifique refused to allow any works of a phantasmagorical nature to be displayed at their grand exhibition, those artists shut out by the committee organized their own counter-exhibition to be held at the same time across the river. Somnor devenu magnifique, mag, magnifique, sorry, my French is just a little choppy, as the show came to be called, was the talk of the Parisian press for months, earning equal amounts of curiosity, dismissal, and outright derision, but the exiled Godfleys had made their point. The paranormal, the anomalous, and the bizarre had found a place in the world of art and would not be so easily gotten rid of. Somno Devenu Magnifique held its exhibitions every ten years thereafter, and as time passed, the world of anomalous art grew larger. From its beginnings in Paris, artists from all across France and Europe, and later from the Americas and the Orient as well, began attending the increasingly prestigious and increasingly bizarre and difficult to keep hidden from the disdainful eyes of a concerned government exhibition, expressing new and different interpretations of the role of the anomalous in human life. It was at the sixth decennial exhibition in 1924 that the growing rift between the two largest schools of thought, logical versus emotional, science versus faith, old world versus new, came to a head. For it was at the sh- that show that for the first time, the works of the French surrealist Marcel Duchamp would be exhibition- exhibited alongside those of Ruiz Marcos, a Mexican artist whose themes of magical realism and religious awe intertwined with the viscerally accessible for for Diana of our world had set art critics worldwide at war with each other. And Ruiz is actually going to come up in, in a couple of moments. Those who saw the two during the days leading up to the opening of the exhibition said they spent nearly the entire time in heated discussion with one another. 
in English, for neither one spoke the other's mother tongue confidently, about everything under the sun, the importance of the artist in relation to his work, the importance of context, faith, knowledge, law, free will, God, the state, democracy, Marxism, the war, the League of Nations, and the best way to serve a cup of coffee. Obviously, that's the most important. It seemed that they might continue bickering throughout the entire exhibition, but as the artist prepared to greet the assembled press in the morning of its grand opening, they appeared to have finally come to an understanding. Hopefully, they figured out that coffee should never be drank black. That's disgusting. And Ruiz and what was the other dude's name? Marcel. If you ever drink black coffee, I will, I will personally find you and kill you. If there is one image that comes to the mind of any art historian when the 1924 Expo is brought up, it is of that iconic photo of Duchamp and Ruiz posing side by side with their fellow artists in front of the still closed doors, Marcos seemingly leaning over to whisper something into Duchamp's ear. For decades, many have speculated on what words Marcos had for his colleague during that memorable instant. A question of metaphysics? Or a challenge? An affirmation of their coming to terms? A reminder of the reason why they were there at that moment in time? Perhaps an expression of amazement at the multitudes that had come to see them? According to one reporter who claimed he stood close enough to overhear that whisper amidst the din of the crowd, it was all five at once, expressed in four simple words. Are we cool yet? <laughs> Excerpt from The Coolest War Memories of a Critic by Anonymous. So I guess that is meant to kind of explain the uh, the name behind the, um, the group of interest. Uh, that was a bit of a tangent. Anyways, uh, back to the overview. The movement has no centralized leadership, no headquarters, very few f traditions or conventions, and no official membership roles or requirements. The only thing one needs to do, call oneself a member, is to make art that employs, exploits, or revolves around anomalous objects, beings, or phenomena. The organization of an AWCY cell varies wildly from place to place. Many groups are organized into small salons led by a creative mastermind or a professional critic, while others are collectives with no clear leader and some members prefer to work entirely on their own. In the opinions of some, it is not even necessary to know that the movement exists in order to be a part of it. The tendency of some such groups to produce highly visible public artworks that can cause death, injury, or lasting psychological harm <coughs> has, led to some, has, led, has led some to decry the entire movement as a bunch of art terrorists, a label some of its members wear with pride, some repudiate uh, entirely, and some wear ironically. The largest and most visible gathering of AWCY artists in any place or time is the Somnol Devenu Magnifique, a grand exhibit exhibition. Oh, you know what? The name of that is Magnifique is is obviously magnificent, which could be a synonym for cool. So I'm gonna guess and say the Somnol Devenu Magnifique is just are we cool yet in French? I'm not gonna look that up. Feel free to on your own, <laughs> but um, it's just a wild guess. Anyways, a grand exhibition held every 10 years since 1874, at which those in the know can gather to view and scrutinize a selection of some of the finest works and anomalous art produced over the previous decade. To have a work accepted is considered, by those who care about such things, to be one of the greatest achievements an artist, an, an artist uh, can attain in a career, and members of cells all around the world petition to have their works displayed. Um, and then, uh, I didn't mention it, but um, to the right there is a picture of, I forget, which SCP it is, but it's the clay one um, that will like move and everything. It's called the Treachery of Euclids. And at the bottom, um, it's the creator information. The Treachery of Euclids is a parody incorporating elements of a photograph by Kisuke Yamamoto of the work Untitled 2004 by Izumi Kato and the painting La. I'm not reading that. That's really uh, La Trahison de Imijas by uh, Ren Magritte. All rights are reserved by the artists. A note of caution, SCP-173 is a secondary use of the image of the art piece. Yeah, so it's it's SCP-173, I forgot um, what it is. So that's just like, um, just copyright things. Um, I'm gonna head over to the information page. Uh, it says, AWCY objects are described in a format called a project proposal. Project proposal is a brief essay by an individual artist about an object she or he has either created or intends to create and is submitted and is submitting for consideration in the de decennial exhibition or which they are seeking funding or materials from a patron so that they can create it. Page title of a proposal should be project proposal XXXXYYY title in which XXXX is the year of the next exhibition for which it will be eligible for entry. So if the artist is writing in the late 70s, it would be in preparation for the 1984 Expo. YYY, being an arbitrary number, assumed to be derived from the order in which that proposal was received by the exposition's submission jury, and the title being the artist's name for the object. The essay is formatted as follows. Title. The artist's title for, this, for the piece as mentioned above, italicized. 
The serial requirements bolded a list of materials the artist used to create the piece of which uh, or which she slash he expects to need, ranging from the ordinary to the exotic and hard to find to that which is anomalous and in and of, end of itself. <clears throat> Abstract, a brief description of the piece, what it is, what it's supposed to do, how it does it, if the artist knows, how it should be displayed, etc., and intent. In this section, the artist speaking in first person describes their reasons for creating this piece, what motivated them to come up with the idea, what they hope to achieve by producing it, how they went about making it, who the intended audience is, what kind of reaction they hope to get from the audience, and so on. Um, so like I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Ruiz is has kind of come back. Um, we, I have a tale here called Wowie Go Kill Yourself, Cephal. Why we go kill yourself? Uh, we actually already read this one. I don't remember what episode it was. It was about or what it was for, um, but the the gist of it is was it was about Ruiz, um, fucking. It was about Ruiz Duchamp, which was one of the artists, um, and uh, this was the one where they were talking about um, his. I think um, I forget what they're called. I would just call it an exhibition. I'm pretty sure that's not the word, but his exhibition. Uh, called why we go kill yourself and all, all of them um or like different uh different sort of instructions to i guess well, kill yourself um like one of them was called stab your cephal with nettles um which was about and it had a bunch of open needles with diseases and poisons and stuff um there was uh another one that was called uh press button for fireworks which was C4 and stuff. Um, and so, like, the whole point was to kind of, like, joke around and be like, what? well, the joke was, why we go kill, kill yourself, but then it was, and I, people actually started doing it, so he got it. Um, he got a little a little annoyed. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we mentioned that uh, before. You can go ahead and read it again if you would like to. Um, it is relevant to this, but I guess it's since we already did it before, I'm not going to, and I realize that I'm actually just repeating myself still, so I'm going to go ahead and move on to um, another tale called Nobody Dies, one that uh, we haven't actually uh, read before. Like I said, this is called Nobody Dies, and this is a tale. Uh, this is also apparently about Ruiz, so I'm going to go ahead and start that. Ruiz Champ heard a sound in the distance. Honk! Probably nothing. Ruiz continued to pace in the studio, moonlight shining through the glass roof and casting shadows across the room. Felix has passed on the invitation. The only thing that Ruiz could do now is wait. Ruiz to champ. Ruiz to turn to, turn to the doorway. He had waited long enough. The critic adjusted the gray tie on his gray shirt, gray fedora matching his gray eyes. Eeh, I don't want to even imagine that. <laughs> Every wrinkle in his brow exuded an aura of impossible normalcy, feeling that this lone individual was, one, was the one true constant in reality. Ruiz grinned. I can't, like, say the name without, like, doing a lisp, and it's really annoying. <laughs> His audience of one had arrived. The one and only. And what should I call you? Do you prefer critic? Doctor? Professor? Administrator? Reverend, even. Dare I call you God? Or perhaps shall we go with nobody? Oh, okay, so that's kind of, that could be a play on the title, then. I think sir will suffice. Ruiz clapped his hands in unspeakable ecstasy, moving to the man's side. Sir, yes, sir. Right this way, sir. May I take your hat and tie, sir? Welcome, sir. Welcome to my glorious masterpiece. Ruiz flung his hands from his body, theatrically standing in front of his completed work. The lights flicked on with electric hum, saw blades spun on with a whir, neon signs flashing brightly, rows upon rows of deadly contraptions lined the hall. Vivaldi's spring played from the house speakers. Wowie, sir. Wowie. Go kill yourself. Ruiz paused, realizing he wasn't sure how to pronounce yourself. Your. yourself? Or Cephal. Oh, never mind. It's pronounced your Cephal. Silly me. The critic adjusted his fedora. Amateurish. Ruiz laughed, pluck, plucking a yellow circular saw from a shelf. No, sir. No, it's not. You're not looking at it with the right mindset. You're not looking close enough. You're the right audience, but you're looking at the wrong thing, sir. Look at this until you really, really get it, sir. Then you'll understand the exhibit. The critic took the offered saw in his hand. He appraised it briefly. Uninteresting in all respects. This is nothing. Sir... I'd never show nothing to nobody. Look harder. The critic stared at the circle of metal. He stared into the thin coating of paint, literally inside its composition, then noticed a pattern of brushwork. It was not completed in discrete layers, in fact. The brushwork seemed to weave together in three dimensions, the dried paint tangled impossibly. It was so subtle that, in fact, nobody would ever notice it. Nobody, but nobody. 
We looked deeper, beyond the coating, into the metallurgical structure of the disc. The internal flow seemed to twist and turn through impossible spaces, incredible tension pulling through the, through the fabric of reality taut within the hardened disc. He looked deeper, into the molecular structure. There he saw five-dimensional warping that should, by all accounts, cause the disc to shatter into dust. The atomic structure was bent through eight dimensions. Beneath that, the protons were pulled across 18. The constituent quarks below were crackling across 26, and below that, he could feel the tension of, of uncountable vectors in uncountable spaces. The critic inhaled deeply, apprehension sitting in. Ruiz cackled madly. It's all perfectly signed, fine, sir. Yeah. It's all perfectly fine, sir. It's perfectly normal. There's enough stress in that disc alone to destroy the planet. And, sir, I've got five of them, and, I'll, and a hell of a lot more <clears throat> than just saws in here. I have no idea what you're looking at, even now. I was painting blind. I couldn't look that deep, but I searched for it and felt my way around and knotted the stuff together, and there you go. I was very careful about it, sir. Not even you can unravel this tapestry. Then it's too much too tight. The critic looked up at the buzzing, whirring, slicing death machines. In every one of them, he felt the inimitable pull of the impossible. He could tell that they were all joined to the humble chair sitting in the middle of the room. Ruiz's mad grin relaxed in apathetic melancholy. He gestured, and nothing but moonlight was left. Silence fell, and then gestured again, and, with an audible arc of electricity, spotlight shone onto his centerpiece. Of course, you can't possibly let this stand. Someone as erratic, as unpredictable as me, to have such untapped force at his disposal? Frankly unacceptable. Certainly, you could try to pull these things apart yourself, piece by piece, thread by impossible thread, but I don't think you, even your hands are steady enough for that. One wrong yank, and you'll wipe all life from Earth. Luckily for you, though, there's still one hanging cord. You grab this metaphorical cord and pull it. It all collapses. The tightness drops, the tenseness on the world dissipates, and I'm left with a bunch of boring little trinkets. You know what I mean, don't you, sir? The critic's face moved uncomfortable, uncomfortably, staring at the illuminated chair. Come, sir. Let me show you to your throne. That's kind of a long one. Sorry. <sighs> Ruiz grabbed the gray suit of the man by the arm, pulling the suddenly limp figure to the center of the room. Ruiz pushed the critic down onto the chair, fastening straps around his legs, chest, and left arm. Ruiz placed the critic's right hand above a large red lever. The Polaroid camera faced directly towards the critic's gray fedora. Now this is the thing that I'm most proud of, sir. This piece, I call, get your photo ticken, and I do hope I'm pronouncing that clearly enough for you. You see, all you need to do is sit right there, get nice and comfortable, pull that big old lever, and then this contraption here, the good old Polaroid, takes a picture of you. And also you get electrocuted and die. This does, of course, unknit all of my other fancy stuff, completely disabling my armaments. But that last bit's only happening because it's you, sir. The rest happens for everyone. The critic looked dully towards Ruiz, Fedora barely blocking the harsh spotlight from his eyes. Why? Ruiz turned and sat to the side of his camera, shrouded in darkness yet dabbled in moonlight. Because I hate you. Because I need to hold for someone responsible for all of this, all of reality, and it may as well be you. You sit in the darkness and plan and plot, and you think you got it all under control. Well, you don't have it under control. If I'd wanted, I could have just set this off, stuff off yesterday, and nobody would have breathed another breath. And that's not a stupid, shitty, double-meaning thing with nobody. You'd be dead as well, sir. You'd presume to have, you presume to have the authority to take care of everything, when in reality, you're the one who's the least control. Look at you, old man. Sitting in a bland little suit, hopping about and reassuring everyone. All part of the plan, you say. But there is no plan, there is no grand scheme, and it's only by incredible hap happenstance that the world hasn't been obliterated a trillion times over. You're not getting your shit together. So, I need to kill you. With you gone, people will take your place. Deconsolidation of the power base, restructuring of the system, a universal paradigm shift, the ultimate defenestration. All I'm hearing is the incoherent rambling of a madman. A madman? You're calling me a madman? You're the one who made me like this, Grandpa. You're the one who set it all into motion. Sitting around playing with a bunch of fucking puppets, masks upon masks upon masks, playing at being everybody, and what's in the middle? I know as well as you do, nobody lies behind the masks. Lies and lies and lies and lies and lies. So I've sat you here. Subtle hints and triggers forcing you into submission and apathy, into apprehension, servility, and all of that good stuff. But I'm not going to kill you. Sir, no sir, no sir. That's your big red lever to pull. The critic drummed his fingers on the handle. And what if I sit here and do nothing? Then I'll walk over to the wall, press that button, and boom goes the metaphorical dynamite. At once, a large red button began to glow. So, sir, take your pick. Die by yourself, unknown and loved to nobody until the end, and silently save millions. Or die with me. Die with all of us, and with the last of your waking moments, watch the world burn. I'm not fussed either way, sir. Ruiz pulled his right leg up to rest upon his left. Why did you make him to begin with, sir? 
Who? You know who. I honestly don't. Ruiz stood and pulled the critic by his tie, watching him wince as his airways cut off. You don't even remember. You pull impossible shit and move on. You switch masks and dance away. You refuse to shoulder responsibility for your own actions and entrust the world upon the shoulders of cripples. Fuck you, sir. Red really was like you. Uh, I, I forget who Red was, but that's with two Ds. I remember, I recognize that name, but I don't remember who he is. The critic's eyes widen. Red. That was years ago. Long before I found the hat. You mean he actually... Oh. Oh, I am so, so sorry. He wasn't meant to leave. He wasn't ready. I made a mistake. I, I'm, I'm so sorry. Reed quinkled his face, tears pouring unrestrained from his eyes. He let the tie drop, pulling the critic's old and wizened, wizened face into a barely hug. This is not for me. This is not for you. This is for him. This is for him, you useless sack of shit. Ruiz walked back to his seat, staring straight at the old man's gray, sorrowful eyes. You want to show me you're sorry? You pull a fucking lever. You want to make the world a better place? Kill yourself. Kill yourself. Wowie, go kill yourself. Wowie. Wowie. The critic lifted his arm, placed it firmly upon the lever. His face hardened. For what it's worth, Ruiz, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm... Bang! Glass roof shattered, shards falling down in the hall of the death. Ruiz widened his eyes as a perfectly circular hole appeared in the critic's fedora, blood and skull fragments bursting from the puncture. He felt the pressure in the room released as months of impossibility was pulled free. A hollow whine echoing in the space as reality resumed its authority. Ruiz covered his head from the shards, carrying his head to the sniper laying comfortably on the roof among his corpses. The shooter waved to his brother, maliciously grin covering his malicious grin covering his face. Ruiz screamed the only words he could string together. You fucking kill-stealer! Pico Wilson rose from his throne, throwing his rifle through the ruined roof and clattering onto the glass-covered floor, saluted mockingly, then turned and disappeared in the darkness. Ruiz thought to give chase, but knew he was likely already too, or already too far gone. He turned back to the old, dead man, gray matter glistening as blood stained his otherwise pristine suit. Ruiz pulled the fedora from the critic's bloodied head, flawless circle still punched through the front. Ruiz pushed his finger through the hole and wiggled it around. Fuck. The lever remained unpulled. And then unbolted at the bottom. Oh shit, I didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so that was a, a play on words of the title then. Nobody dies, as in nobody, the, 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 the dude, the dude boy. <clears throat> um, next, um, we have an actual entry uh, for Are We Cool Yet? Um, it's Title Project Proposal 2014 to uh, 2112, Dreams of Failure. Uh, and I believe that's the name of the artist, Dreams of Failure, because it said that was how you're supposed to do it earlier. So, yeah, so title Dreams of Failure, Material Requirements, a mixed choir of 128 performers, SATB, sheet music, na nature of composition to be described below, sound canceling headphones for choir, conductor, and other attendees. 500 milliliters of blood plasma from an SCP-1237-1-L positive individual, type O preferred. Uh, and that, um, I don't see which one that is. Uh, it's a state of electrical activity in the human brain, brainwave, observed in certain individuals during periods of extremely deep sleep. I'm not going to read that SCP, but that's kind of a brief description of what it is. Um... SCP Foundation Mobile Task Force Ada-11, quote-unquote Savage Beasts, and Foundation Grade Class W Monastics. Abstract. Dreams of Failure is a performance intended to expose members of an SCP Foundation Task Force to a mildly reality-bending effect for the purpose of observing their reaction to believe that their lives and achievements have amounted to nothing and that they are failures as human beings. This is to be achieved through the application of three key components. A choral piece it's intended to induce in consciousness, the application of a reality bender's blood in order to induce lucid dreaming, and injection of short-term gymnastics to silly effect in the subject's memories. The choral piece is a 45-minute composition for mixed choir, with vocalizations consisting primarily of diphthongs chosen to highlight particular dissonances in the transition between tonal clusters, a range of clicking sounds and rhotic consonants, interspersed with brief snippets of English-language lyrics from popular music expressing themes of failure, irrelevance, and futility. Exposure to this sound collage is intended to affect sections of the brain, which should induce unconsciousness in REM sleep and any listeners not wearing hearing protection. Shortly after the induction of unconsciousness, the subjects are to be injected with a mixture of amnestic chemicals and blood plasma acquired from a person possessing the ability to alter reality via lucid dreaming. 
This injection, coupled with the ongoing core performance, should induce the subjects to experience vivid dreams about real or imagined personal failures. While the reality-altering effects induced by the cocktail will not be of sufficient force to affect the real world, the end result will be that the subject should believe that their dreams are accurate memories of real life, and the amnestic component should ensure that the memory of the dream is not lost upon awakening. Upon conclusion of the choral piece, all performers should evacuate the performance site within 15 minutes, as subjects should begin to awaken around that time. Internal sources within the foundation are to acquire copies of any after-action reports filed by the subjects, and any diaries or videos slash sound recordings may be made may be uh, made by them regarding their experience and their memories, which are to be considered part of the piece and are to be made available for viewing the exhibition. Intent. The Portland outbreak was the closest brush I've ever had with real and total failure. I'm not sure how long it had been floating around before I caught it off, but the band, uh, that band that unexplicably showed up at the jazz club and was allowed to play Rush for 45 minutes, but I've never been quite the same since. My lifelong dreams of conducting and composing for the human voice went out the window. All I wanted to do was share the music of Russian with as many people as I could. The very next day, we had practice, and I threw out the sheet music and started teaching the choir the lyrics to Bastille Day. We nearly had it down before the foundation quarantined the town and started doping everybody up. Things went back to normal after that, mostly. People didn't talk about Rush the way they did during the outbreak, or about the outbreak at all, as if it had never happened. I'm not sure I got the dose of drugs I was supposed to, though. Maybe they didn't give me enough, but I'm naturally resistant to whatever it was that they dosed me, that they dosed everyone else with. I remember almost all of it. The way the music swept through the town, the way all other forms of art just felt irrelevant. I don't feel the urge to cover Rush like I used to, but it's still there nagging at the back of my head, like an itch needling to be scratched. I can't help but marvel at how close my career, my calling, came to being over if I let that urge take control. My goal since then has been to explore the, natur uh, the nature of failure through my music. Ever since I became part of this organization, I've been learning more and more about that foundation that stopped the outbreak, the tools they used, and the individuals who led the quarantine. And amongst them, I met Zoe, and my life changed. I won't bore you with the details of our interactions over the years, as enemies, rivals, grudging allies. I would have told her I loved her if it wouldn't compromise both of us. I learned so much from her over the years. And then, as my dreams had almost been plucked from me in Portland, they were plucked from me again when an accident of genetics took her from us. That's sad. Her comrades in that squad, the ones that intervened in Portland, had struck me as being so confident, so sure of themselves, so capable. Would it be, what would it be like if I turned my artistic efforts in the direction of their failures as human beings? And what if, instead of just describing it to them, I can make them experience it, feel the way I had felt after Portland, the way I felt after Zoe died, and document every aspect of it? Would that not vindicate my fight against the urge in my head to give up everything and start a shivy, shitty cover band? I have dedicated my career to the study of failure. Perhaps, through illustrating their failure, I can find success. Hey everyone, Dave here. I just want to say real quick, thanks for listening. I know this episode has probably been a little weird with just me in it and everything, but um, I, I appreciate you guys sticking with it. Um, be sure to go ahead and share the show with anyone that you might think is interested. It's just super appreciated. Um, we, as usual, have a couple things. Um, I have a couple plugs to put in. Um, as usual, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash scpodcast, or you can just search scpodcast. We have two tiers at the moment. Um, we have a $1 shout out, um, which I just, I realized I just <laughs> said what it was. Um, we have a $1 tier, which is a shout out and a $5 tier, which, um, is, uh, exclusive access to a discord channel and cut content as well as shout outs and, um, any other, other content that we may put out. We also have a Twitter, uh, it's twitter.com forward slash SC podcast show or at SC podcast show. Um, which also has the link to the Discord that I mentioned, as well as the Patreon on there. Um, we have a Discord, uh, which everyone can join if they would like, as well as the channel exclusively for patrons, if you choose to do so. Um, for sponsorships, promotional messages, and personal messages, please email scpodcastofficial at gmail.com. And as always, thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing our music under the title Twisting. Um, coming up in the rest of the episode, uh, I'm going to be doing... Um, Another proposal, I think. Actually, that's the one I just read, so not that. Um, I'm actually going to be reading some other SCPs um, that have to do with this, um, that have to do with are the Are We Cool Yet? Um, so yeah, so I will I'll get right back into the episode, you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and do some SCPs now. Uh, the first SCP that I have is SCP-1999. Um, item number, again, SCP-1999. Object class Euclid. Uh, off to the right um, is a picture of a shower mat. Uh, it says shower mat affected by SCP-1999 in blank New York. Uh, and 
I'm not, it has some writing on it. Um, I'm not sure what it says. It says Lowe's. Uh, it's spelled L-O-E-W-E-S. Um, like I said, the object class was Euclid and the special containment procedures. Mobile Task Force IOTA-9, Collected Curios, is to work with museums in designated areas of effect, identifying cases of vandalism concerning the name Lowe's. The MTF will also will also secure all items affected by SCP-1999. The Foundation will work to restore items with high monetary or cultural value. All instances of the word Lowe's written in anything other than a ballpoint pen or felt-tip marker ink are not to be considered SCP-1999. Print and graffiti is to be investigated for links to Data's Collective Are We Cool Yet? See Addendum 1999-D. And then crossed out, it says investigation of the origin of the name is ongoing. Not crossed out, see addenda. Description. 1999 is a phenomenon whereby the name Lowe's, sometimes stylized as Lowe's, or, which is caps, or less frequently, or less frequently uh, all uh, small caps, Lowe's, inscribes itself onto the surface of objects through unknown means. The name appears to be written on an either ballpoint pen or felt-tip marker, and the handwriting consistent throughout all instances. See addendum 1999-B. Uh, Objects so far discovered with SCP-1999 written on them have had no similarities to one another other than having been located inside museums, a feature which has been instrumental in identifying fabricated instances. This has included exhibited artifacts, non-exhibit non museum items, and objects owned by employees and visitors. Then crossed out, it says, objects have been found within a 15-kilometer radius of Manhattan, New York City, and then not crossed out, it says, see addenda. An object marked with... Uh, an object marked with the name produces an effect whereby subjects consider it the property of another person, even if it was originally theirs. In such cases, subjects possessing of the item is considered temporary, as though it was borrowed. Reactions to affected objects will be typical to, of persons wishing to protect another's property. Subjects can be coerced into misusing or even damaging objects, but will often display extreme distress when asked to do so. Museum staff have, on numerous occasions, removed items from existence from exhibits without prompting, later stating the objects in question is Elfie's. Seeing the name or knowing about its existence on the objects is unnecessary for the effect to take place. Analysis of affected objects suggests a frequency of occurrence between one and three months. Addendum 1999-A. Contact with museums in Germany has identified the name Lowe's, uh, and that's O with the two dots over it, occurring on objects prior to the 1940s, especially in the city of Stuttgart. These are also considered to be instances of SCP-1999. Addendum 1999-B. Handwriting analysis has confirmed a match with a Mrs. Alpha S. Lowe's, uh, Nye uh, S., and then the rest is redacted, of Manhattan, New York City. Interviews with Mrs. Lowe's family revealed that she settled in Manhattan shortly after coming to the United States from Germany in 1941, and that, barring vacations, she did not leave the area for the remainder of her life. The date of her emigration coincides with the shift in spelling of SCP-1999 instances and the shift in location of instances from Stuttgart to Manhattan. The interviews also reveal nothing anomalous about Mrs. Lowe's herself. No direct mechanism connecting Mrs. Lowe's to SCP-199 has been found. As the Blank Blank Museum, where Mrs. Lowe's worked as a clerk for 30 years, was not affected by SCP-1999 prior to 2009, it is theorized that uh, Mrs. Lowe's, despite being the uh, focus of the phenomenon, had a small range about her person in which 1999 did not occur. Since her death on Redacted Redacted 2009, instances of SCP-199 have begun occurring less frequently, no more often than once every five months, but with increased range. 1999 has... Sorry, I've been saying too many nines. 199... 199... That's... No, I was right. <laughs> Sorry. You can probably cut that out. <laughs> SCP-1999 has now occurred in the Mid-Atlantic, Southern and Southwestern United States, coinciding with places Mrs. Lowe's visited in life. No new instances appear have appeared in Germany. While the designation of any place as a museum opens it to SCP-1999, no museums dedicated after 2009 have been affected. Monitoring is ongoing. Frequency of occurrence appears to have no correlation to the location of Mrs. Lowe's body. Ex exhumation of the body revealed no anomalous properties. Addendum 1999-C. The investigation is ongoing, but at this time there are no reports of Mrs. Lowe's maiden name appearing on any objects. The oldest object of date found affected by SCP-1999 was removed from the blank Stuttgart in 1938 after it had been discovered and vandalized. The year coincides with Mrs. Lowe's marriage. <laughs> Addendum 1999-D. 
The link between SCP-1999 and Are We Cool Yet was discovered during the containment of an arts installation, now SCP Redacted and 2000 Redacted, where the word Lowe's was found spray-painted in three places inside and outside. Instances of the word, mostly written in spray paint, have continued to appear since, alarmingly near sites being investigated by the Foundation for Containment of SCPs. The in investigation into possible information leaks has been labeled by top priority by O5 Council. Ms. Lowe's and her family are at this time considered to have no connection to Are We Cool Yet? Eek. So it, it seems to just be an SCP that like shows up on specifically stuff in museums uh, that makes whoever originally had it think it, it's someone else's and so I guess they just like don't want it anymore. Um, the next SCP that I'm reading is SCP-1207. Uh, item numbers again one SCP-1207 an object class is safe off to the right there's a picture it says this is a mirror with one R and then below it, it says you are a typo and then that says true appearance of SCP-1207 special containment procedures <clears throat> SCP-1207 is to be wrapped in opaque cloth and contained within a within a standard and inanimate objects locker in accordance with standard protocol for direct exposure line of sight cognito hazards SCP-1207 is to be kept under constant real-time video surveillance whenever it is removed from its locker for any purpose. Maintenance, analysis, experiment, experimentation, etc. Direct exposure to SCP-1207 is to be minimized. Maximum cumulative uh, direct exposure for individual personnel is not to exceed 2 2 hours within a 30-30 day period, or 24-24 hours within an individual lifetime. Personnel whose cumulative direct exposure to SCP-1207 exceeds two hours within a 30-day period are to be immediately placed on psychological leave until such time as they have been judged free of the symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder and are not to resume active duty until they have successfully undergone retraining in data entry and proofreading. Description. All this, uh, this first paragraph is um, all crossed out. SCP-1207 is a mirror again, no, uh, only one R, approximately one meter by one half meter in size in a white wooden frame painted with pink and red hearts. Using the Kinscale method of mirror type object evaluation, Foundation scientists have established it is a minor level uh, physiological threat. And then not crossed out. SCP-1207 is a metal sign approximately one meter by one half meter in size painted white with embossed letters reading, this is a mirror, you are a typo, and in parentheses, SIC. It is a direct exposure cognito hazard, which manifests three distinct anomalous effects upon a subject within line of sight. The first effect, which is the most obvious, is that any sighted and then crossed out person mammal, vertebrate, uh, directly exposed to the SCP-1207 will perceive it as being a mirror, even if they are aware of its true nature. Test subjects not capable of mirror recognition will perform territorial threat displays against SCP-1207. Human subjects uniformly describe the mirror as being contained within a white wooden frame with pink and red hearts. However, more detailed descriptions vary from subject to subject. Mind blindfolded subjects report that 1207 feels smooth and glassy, with wood around the edges. Conversely, blind subjects report that SCP-1207 feels metallic and bumpy. It is to be emphasized that, despite the perceptions and reactions of affected subjects, 1207 does not actually function as a mirror. The, section, the second anomalous effect is that subjects exposed to 1207 will rapidly develop symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder as they examine their reflections, quote-unquote. Human subjects will voice a variety of complaints about their physical appearance, ranging from, I'm the wrong height, to, my tattoo is crooked, and always ending with, I'm not cool yet. <laughs> so that's a reference to the name of the group of interest. Non-human subjects capable of mirror recognition will perform compulsive grooming. As cumulative exposure time to SCP-1207 increases, subjects will begin to modify their appearances and, to, and attempts to correct themselves, typically by application of cosmetics. Subjects without access to cosmetics will engage in self-mutilation. So, subjects, when shows actual mirrors, will express satisfaction with their modifications. However, when re-exposed to SCP-1207, subjects will again find fault with their appearance. The third anomalous effect is that subjects opposed, exposed to 1207 will gradually develop symptoms of dyslexia, losing their ability to spell, and to notice spelling errors. This effect is limited to subjects familiar with the English language, and always began with the subject cons consistently misspelling the word mirror as mirror with one R. The induced dyslexia is temporary, however the factors determining the rate at which individual subjects recover have not been determined. SCP-1207 was discovered in an abandoned storage unit facility and redacted, which had been in use 
uh, as a workspace by members of the group of NRS uh, currently identified as Are We Cool Yet? It is theorized that 1207 was to form the basis of an unfinished installation. Notes left by the artist indicate that the completed installation was a rumination on the essence of how the ways we see ourselves shape what we are. Um, that's actually kind of spooky. Uh, I guess it, it definitely makes sense with what the picture is. This is a mirror with one R. You are a typo. Um, I before reading this, I kind of figured that it would. That's what it would be. It would sort of. It's something that kind of makes you like look at yourself, and no matter what. Um, be the quote-unquote typo or be the some be the thing that is wrong uh next i'm going to be reading scp-1617 uh item number is again 1617 object class is safe special containment procedures all contain scp-1617 instances are to be held within safe class storage lockers within site 39 scp-171 or 1617 instances require incidental cleaning once per six months to prevent that excuse me <laughs> to prevent oh that's that tastes like chili oh my god <laughs> i want to do that again uh special containment procedures all contained scp-1617 instances are to be held within safe class storage lockers within site 39 scp-1617 instances require incidental cleaning once per six months to prevent further deterioration excessive deterioration on an instance requires restoration work to be performed as necessary this restoration may be performed by any qualified personnel. New instances of 1617 are be contained by Mobile Task Force Upsilon-18, Digital Millennium Copyright Agents, and transported to Site-39. Description SCP-1617 is the collective designation of various counterfeit art pieces. Approximately 96% SCP-1617 instances have been identified as duplicates of pre-20th century paintings or sculptures. The remaining 4% are works with which exhibit a similar anomalous effect, but the original works and artists are not known to have ex existed in any form. When a viewer observes an SCP-1617 instance and identifies it as an artwork, they will begin to experience auditory and visual hallucinations. The visual hallucinations typically involve a geometrically simple pattern being repeated, being repeatedly scrolled and manipulated, while the auditory hallucinations are typically, typically composed of synthesized musical scores, often identified as covers of songs popular during the 1980s and 1990s. All viewers will report some manner of English language text appearing during these hallucinations. This text typically identifies the original piece's name and artist, as well as a message which purports to be from the creator of the counterfeit piece. The hallucination will cease within two, 20 seconds to 2 minutes, depending on the object viewed. After these hallucinations cease, the viewer is able to observe the SCP-1617 instance for no further anomalous effects. Should the viewer cease observing an SCP-1617 instance for a period of 10 minutes, returning to that instance and viewing it again will result in an identical hallucination. Different viewers observing the same object will report similar or identical hallucinations. Addendum 1. Sample longs of hallucination effects. SCP-1617-14 <clears throat> original piece, The Thinker, original artist, August Roden. Auditory hallucination. Cover of Barbie Girl, Girl by Aqua. Pitched one octave higher. Sounds similar to square waves. Visual hallucination. High speed forwards to uh, high speed forwards movement through a purple nebula. English text. The Thinker by Roden cracked by AWCY Kraken Crew. Enjoy the Starfield. SCP-1617-39. Original piece, The Mona Lisa, original artist, Leonardo da Vinci, auditory hallucination, cover of Baby One More Time by Britney Spears, sounds similar to triangle waves, visual hallucination, dancing cartoon frog in front of black and white checkerboard pattern, English text, The Mona Lisa by da Vinci cracked by the dude, with two O's, an old classic for all to enjoy. SCP-1617-117, original piece, unknown, original artist, unknown, description, a landscape painting of a planet that has superficial similarity to Mars. Auditory hallucination? Unknown. Believed to be the original composition based in 7-4 time. Sounds similar to triangle waves. Visual hallucination. Complex mechanism with similarity to the internals of a cuckoo clock. Cuckoo clock. Cuckoo clock. Same thing. <laughs> English text. Zan Paranga by Orosilius cracked by AWCY Kraken Crew. Special thanks to Brian underscore 29 for the original source. Addendum 2. On 20.06.2008, Site-39 received a mailed message written in a composite language derivative of Latin, Greek, and Old English. This message was translated as follows. To the artist thieves of the derivative works and illegible, we write on behalf of the artist Orosilius. 
this is a formal message threat, and take down requests for your hosted works. These pieces violate the intellectual property rights of Orcellus. As you may know, this violates ownership or GIF law and must cease properly. Request, order, prompt, removal of further actions will be taken. Um, so I'm, I freak, I'm not, I guess it's just a collection of different things. It's not specifically one different thing. I, I guess it's, they're just all different editions of other kinds of art that fuck with you <laughs> a lot. You're just, you're, you're, you're tripping a little bit. Not gonna lie. Not, not gonna lie. For real, for real. I'm sorry. I need to stop. I'm going to go ahead and read one more uh, SCP before we end this podcast out, and that, or this episode out, and that is SCP-1226. Item number, again, 1226. Object class, safe. Special containment procedures. SCP-1226 is to be hung on the wall of a standard containment chamber and access restricted to testing personnel. 1226 may be safely observed. Uh, fuck, I was going to burp, and then I didn't. 1226 may be safely observed, remotely or piecemeal. Its anomalous properties manifest only when it is viewed in person in its entirety. A 6 centimeter by 6 centimeter square of opaque black plastic has been positioned in the upper left corner of SCP-1226 to be removed for testing purposes. Only D-class personnel are permitted to view SCP-1226 uncovered. Special security precautions are, be, are to be taken when exposing subjects to SCP-1226, as post-exposure subjects exhibit heightened aggression, endurance, and physical strength. Post-exposure uh, subjects are to be terminated at the conclusion of testing. Description: SCP-1226 is a large oil landscape painting measuring 2 meters by 4 meters. It depicts, in great detail, the, de- the detonation of a nuclear, war- a nuclear weapon above a large city, uh, and there's one footnote, which says the skyline of the city depicted in 1226 does not conform to that of any currently extant urban center. Photorealistic attention has been paid to every detail of the painting, from optically correct reflections from the thousands of glass shards depicted to the accurate representation of the effects of atomic firestorm and the 3,129 human fingers portrayed on the streets. 1226 was originally displayed in a varnished open frame, accompanied by a freestanding in- in- informational plaque, footnote 2, Neither frame nor plaque have exhibited anonymous properties and may be viewed upon request. <clears throat> For full text of the plaques, see Addendum 1226-02. When a subject views the whole of SCP-1226 in person, it causes an immediate mental and physical change in the viewer. A significant increase in physical size and overall musculature is accompanied by a pronounced curvature of the spine, forcing a hunched, simian po- posture. The skull is radically reshaped, the forehead sloping and jaw protruding. There is, this results in a marked reduction of total brain mass and an increase in cranial pressure, with a significant reduction in cerebral volume. These changes occur over the space of about 40 seconds and are evidently extremely painful. Post-exposure subjects exhibit a massive loss of mental capacity consistent with a reduction in brain mass. Subjects are capable of only rudimentary... rudimentary there's the second one. I always pretty much find the entire thing, and then this one article is just fucking me over. Subjects are capable of only rudimentary guttural vocalizations and simply gesturing by way of communication, and are concerned only with feeding, copulating, which is reproducing, and other basic instinctual behaviors. Due to the intense pain of loss of mental function associated with transformation, subjects invariable enter a violent state of panic. Initial descriptions of affected subjects as cavemen have been proven accurate, inaccurate. Inaccurate. Autopsies and paleontological analysis have revealed marked dissimilarities between known human ancestors and affected uh, subjects. Currently favored theories propose that subjects are altered into a hitherto undiscovered prehistoric hominoid hominid, or a popularly perceived caveman archetype. Our re-education and rehabilitation of efforts to date have failed due to the radical simplification of subjects' brain structures. Addendum 1226-01, Acquisition Log. 1226 was acquired on redacted, 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 following its unveiling at data redacted, gallery, and data redacted. The unveiling event was heavily promoted as featuring the latest work of redacted, redacted, and was attended by many well-known members of the global artistic community. The unveiling event exposed redacted individuals to the anomalous effects of SCP-1226. Those gallery patrons and employees not exposed were killed by exposed subjects over the next half hour, either through bludgeoning, cannibalism, redacted, redacted, or some combination thereof. 
E. <laughs> 911 calls and police reports were intercepted by MTF Upsilon-23, art critics, affected subjects captured or eliminated, and amnestics administered, administered to witnesses and first responders. SCP-1226 anomalous effects were confirmed on-site by MTF Epsilon-23, um, and SCP-1226 was taken into containment. Addendum 1226-02. Uh, I swear, I was doing fine. Man, it's just... Uh. <laughs> uh, it looks like there's a third footnote, but I don't know where that actually was. Oh, it's at the bottom of the next one. <laughs> yeah. Addendum 1226-02. Text of informational plaque. The inevitable conclusion of the modern age is in itself is in, in self-destruction. The postmodern era will be like the pre-modern era. The new will be like the old. There will be shiny chrome prim... Primit primitivism for everyone, and we'll all finally be cool. And then footnote, uh, footnote three, Mr. Blank Blank, noted postmodernist painter, professed no knowledge of an exhibition at Data Redacted featuring his work. Furthermore, SCP-1226 is highly atypical of his artwork. Um, so it looks like someone may have signed whoever this guy's name is. Um, also, again, the reference to the name of we'll all finally be cool. Um, yeah, so that was Are We Cool Yet? Uh, as mentioned earlier, they're um, sort of like a, a snobby um, collection of, of artists who decide to... I, this feels very... A lot of these things feel very much like your stereotypical like social experiment type shit. Um, or it's just like, oh yeah, well I'm doing this to see <clears throat> how people react and just see the way society is as a whole is coming to get i don't know it's just they, <laughs> that's what it feels like to me um but yeah again they're just like i said a group of artists who uh as snore as as snoring okay as Snorin put it earlier haughty snobbish and dicks um all of which affect people in different ways i think uh ruiz i forget his last name but the guy with the wow we go kill yourself is probably my favorite i think just because of how ironic it is um also the whole thing about the uh, the critic dying or nobody dies or whatever. It mentioned administrator at one point, but it didn't. I don't. I don't. Th I, obviously, Soren is always talking about how like your canon is your own. You can decide what is canon. I don't personally think that was the actual administrator. Um, could be. Could not be. Who knows? Um, but yeah. Uh, once again, this has been the Secure Contained podcast. Uh, I'm your co-host, David. Uh, or host, I guess, for this episode. I'm not sure what we're doing next week. Soren can put in a little clip here if he would like to. I'm not sure if he's going to. Um, but who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what we're doing next week. But nonetheless, you should tune in, listen to that, because that'll be cool. Um, but anyways, yeah, that's, that's all for this episode. Thanks again for listening this week. I know it's been kind of weird with just me, but thanks for sticking with it. Uh, that's all for now, and we will hopefully... Uh, with you guys next week. See ya.